Let's return in our Bibles to the third chapter of Hebrews, where we have a sober warning given to those Jewish Christians by our brother Paul. That is a sober warning to us as well. Hebrews chapter 3. Our purpose as a Christian is to be able to live and die in the spirit of Psalm 26 that we just read. That we can come before the Lord with the boldness and confidence that David did. He was an exception. That he could pray that way and pray so boldly. And we want to be able to pray as boldly and confidently as he did. And to mean it and have the Lord believe it. And see it and know that our lives back up what we have said. We want to walk in our integrity as he did. The warnings are plain in scripture. That there is much to pull us off of such a life. There are many temptations within and without to keep us from living in such a way. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is able to deceive you. And thus harden your heart to the extent that you could depart from the living God. That is the warning of these two verses. One of the ways we counteract that is to have a church where we can exhort one another daily in order to avoid the temptation and pull of sin that would take us apart from the living God and cause us to depart. And so we need to take heed. And one of the ways we take heed is to consider The delusions that we give ourselves to keep us from living all out for the Lord. And we want to consider a few more of those this morning. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 1, Paul went on to say, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Psalm 95, which came... Many years after Israel entered the land of Canaan, about 500 years, Psalm 95 spoke of another rest. And so the Apostle Paul here in this first verse warns those Hebrew believers, let us therefore fear that we might miss the New Testament rest as our brethren missed the Old Testament rest when they wouldn't take the land of Canaan because of the evil report of ten spies. And then we have verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. A whole generation from 20 years of age and upward was wiped out, including Moses, including Aaron, in the wilderness for not taking the land of promise, the land of rest that God had given to his people. And the warning here in Hebrews 3 and 4 is that if we do not take heed, and if we do not fear, we can lose the New Testament rest as well by not believing as we should. Let us labor, therefore. We want to take heed, 3.12. We want to fear, 4.1. And we want to labor, 4.11, to enter in to that New Testament rest, which is the gospel rest of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to fear... And labor to do so. Look at Titus, which is the book that comes before Hebrews and the second chapter. We just sang a song in which we said that when we get to heaven, the mansions there will be ringing with shouts of sovereign grace. That without the sovereign grace of God, sinners would not and could not be saved. But that grace is supposed to teach us something. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. This is the gospel of the grace of God, the revelation of God's grace. It's appeared to all sorts of men throughout the whole world. The gospel had been preached, Paul tells us in many places. What does it teach us? Verse 12, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing 
of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That is the mandate of the gospel of the grace of God, that we deny ourselves and live a sober, righteous, godly life in this present world where we are living, that we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and that we are zealous of good works as the peculiar people of God whom he has redeemed by the death of his Son. If we fall short of this, the grace of God has been squandered by us if we even know the grace of God in truth. This is our standard. This is how we must live and die. By these three verses. Living a life of self-denial. Living a life of hopeful expectation. And longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. And zealous of good works. Because of the Lord redeeming us to be His peculiar people. Paul went on to tell Titus in the last verse of that chapter, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. In that chapter, he started with the aged men and the problems they have. The aged women and what they should do. The young women, what they should do as being taught by the aged women. The young men, how they should live. Ministers, how they should speak. Servants, how they should work on the job. And then the verses that I just gave you. These things are to be pressed on God's people. This is how we're to live. This is what needs to be preached. We don't need entertainment. We need exhortation. We don't need pleasure. We need to be pressed in order to keep God's commandments and live acceptable lives before Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Are you living all out for the Lord Jesus Christ in every part of your life with all of your ability and all of your strength? Are you doing that? The Lord's asking you this morning. Your answer to me is of little consequence. But what is your answer before the Lord? And what is your answer to your conscience? Are you living all out for the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you hiding sin? Are you protecting slothfulness? Have you lost your zeal and joy for the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to ask ourselves this every day. Because that is examining ourselves. To see whether we're in the faith. If we truly love the Lord or not. If we've got our sins confessed. If we hate our sins. If we're full of joy. If the Holy Ghost and full of peace and hope. Because of the Holy Ghost. Are we walking in the Spirit as we live in the Spirit or not? We will give an account for this day when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because His Word will be opened and we will face our lives in the mirror of God's Word. And we need to look into that mirror and see that we're coming short of God's expectations for us as His dear children. And we need to make adjustments and changes. We need to repent and be converted so that we're serving Him fully. It is a minister's job to make war with his hearers. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. We can get verse 3 to start the sentence. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul would say about himself and other ministers... We do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience When your obedience is fulfilled. That is a minister's job description right there in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. We have an adversarial role in one respect this morning. And that is from the word of God, we all need to be attacked in order for the thoughts and imaginations of our hearts to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. 
We started out nearly an hour ago with First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9, where David said to Solomon, Solomon, my son, know the God of thy father. He searches all the imaginations of the thoughts, and he knows your heart. If you depart from him, he will forsake you forever. If you will seek him, you will find him. And here we have ministers, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, casting down imaginations. You all have imaginations. I have imaginations. But the word of God is to cast them down. Because we cannot and should not imagine anything against the written record God has given on how we are to live. You imagine things that you want to do. You imagine a way of life that is better than what the Bible says. But those are imaginations that need to be pulled down. You have strongholds of lies that you've told yourself in which you trust. And they need to be pulled down until we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Until every thought of our lives is geared toward obeying Jesus Christ. Amen. Anything less than that, and we're at war with God's Word and God's minister and God Himself. Lord, help us to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You get things that you think of highly, but those thoughts that you have that take you away from the full love of God, they need to be cast down until our obedience has been fulfilled. And then once our obedience has been fulfilled, a faithful minister like our brother Paul would say, that he had a readiness to revenge all disobedience. He was ready to come in revenge if they were to slip away again from their steadfastness in Christ. Look at Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Our religion is a religion of the heart. And we want to examine our hearts and make sure that we're not believing things there that excuse our sin or that cause us to live less than a sold-out life for Jesus Christ. If you're living for yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ, you're living for no one. Your whole life is a sham. Because if you're living for yourself at all, Jesus Christ is not honored by your life. And if you're living for Jesus Christ at all, you're not living for yourself very well. It's one or the other. You cannot mix the two. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it. If you try to preserve your life for your sake, you'll lose it. If you'll give up your life, you can find your life in its fullest extent. That's what Jesus said. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. There is a very long sentence here, and we will jump into the middle of it because you will get the thought without the whole sentence. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man. And all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. And the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. And so it goes on to describe God's judgments on such men. But notice how they get to their sinfulness. Notice how the judgment of God comes on a man, according to verse 18, or a woman, or a family. How does God's judgment come on a man, or a woman, or a family, or a tribe? How does it happen? It says, his heart turneth away from the Lord his God. And he hears the words of God's word. And he blesses himself in his own heart. Verse 19. And he says to himself, I shall have peace, 
though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. I'm going to get away with the way I live. The way I live is good enough. The way I live is close enough. God is not going to punish me. While he hears the words of the curse of this book, he justifies and excuses himself that he can get away with it. I know this is a frequent emphasis of my preaching. Because we live in a time where there are Christians that have little regard for the law of God and the curses that it describes. We have a heart within us that is bent on deceitfulness and sin. And the devil himself is seeking, walking about seeking whom he may devour. And he wants to devour us. We are at war. I'm at war with you, and you are at war with your lusts. We're all at war with our lusts. And here is the deceitful delusion. I shall have peace. I'm okay. I'm not going to be judged. The Lord's going to leave me alone. Even while he's hearing the words of the curse of this book. I'm going to get away with it. We all think that. We all think that in subjects natural and spiritual. That we are an exception because we are special. This is how a man does it. This is how a woman does it. And this is how a family does it. A family of hypocrites that are not living all out for the Lord Jesus Christ. They think that they're going to be okay. And God is going to judge them. God will judge every man, woman, or family. And may God, may God convict us that we will search our hearts and not be like this. Amen. We will not bless ourselves, but we will examine ourselves. We will not bless ourselves, but we will try ourselves and confess our sins unto the Lord. Look at Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Our religion is of the heart. And we have to go right back to our heart and find out, are we cheating the Lord at all? Are we covering any sin? Are we living all out for Him or are we just living as a 70% Christian or a 90% Christian or a 10% Christian? What is the case in your heart? Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 22, For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. But they wouldn't obey. Now in Jeremiah 7.22, it tells us here that when God brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, He did not command them regarding burnt offerings or sacrifices. Oh yes, He did. So what does Jeremiah 7.22 mean? Because he certainly did command them to teach regarding burnt offerings and sacrifices. His point is, that was a lesser part of his religion than verse 23. That was not the emphasis of his religion. The emphasis of his religion was not the ritual of burnt offerings and sacrifices. The emphasis of his religion was the heart religion of verse 23. Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you. It wasn't the outward ritual. It was the inward religion of obeying all that God has commanded us. What keeps us from doing that? We lie to ourselves to excuse sin. We don't want to be ignorant of the devil's devices. Any deviation from an all-out commitment to serve the Lord Jesus Christ is manifest self-deception. You have lied to yourself in some way. You are blessing yourself that you're going to have peace when God has said, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There is no peace for those that live contrary to God's word, and yet we tell ourselves that we can. Last Lord's Day, delusion number one, I have more time. Oh, we delude ourselves thinking, I'll get serious soon. I'll get serious later. I'll get serious when I'm old. I'll get serious after I've had some fun in the world. That was the first delusion we looked at last Lord's Day. And we saw that it was a fantasy. It doesn't work. It's a lie. And if you tell it, that's one problem. But if you believe it, that's a second problem. And that's the real problem. 
You're deceiving your own heart. You're deceiving yourself. The second delusion was, but I can be friendly with the world and get away with it. Oh, no, you can't. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Even in the church at Corinth, when those evil communications were by ministers in that church. Forget the world. Obviously, that's true. But even in the church at Corinth, good manners were being corrupted by evil communications. Number three, I'm not as bad as so-and-so and a whole lot of other people. And the Bible tells us that you are not wise to compare yourself among yourselves. There's only one standard by which we want to measure ourselves, and it's the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you want to take the Apostle Paul, who said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am a follower of Jesus Christ. That is our standard. We do not compare ourselves among others. You cannot say, well, I know the church of Greenville quite well, and I can break it into quartiles, just like my test in school. When I used to come in the first quartile in my test, that's about the kind of a person that would reason this way, I can look at the church of Greenville and I can break them into quartiles. The bottom quartile, the top quartile, and hey, I'm in the third quartile from the bottom. I'm between 50 and 75% of godliness as measured by the other members. I'm doing pretty good. The Lord doesn't care about any standard like that. He wants you to measure yourself by the life of His Son and by the standard of God's Word. So we looked at that one. The fourth one we looked at is, but I'm being blessed anyway the way I'm living right now. The Lord's blessing me. And we saw that in the Bible there's such a thing as the prosperity of fools that deceive men. We saw that God blessed Israel with quail, but He sent leanness into their souls. And we, we agreed, I hope we all agreed, that we would rather have to eat manna forever but have fatness in our souls right. rather than have God send quail and we think we're being blessed while he sends leanness into our souls. Then the fifth one we looked at was, but it's not all my fault. Other people have contributed to my demise. My parents weren't good enough. My spouse isn't good enough. You know, women will say, if I had a more loving husband, I'd be a more submissive wife. And a man will say, if I had a more submissive wife, I'd be a more loving husband. Well, now, how much progress is a marriage like that going to make? They need to measure themselves by the Word of God. Amen. Then they can make progress. But it's not all my fault is a lying excuse. Right. Let's think about another one. We tell ourselves, but I'm not that bad overall. Actually, I'm doing quite well. I'm a pretty good Christian. Yeah, Moses wasn't too bad either overall. But he never saw the rest of God, did he? Amen. Even though he begged for it several times, Moses never entered the land of Canaan. David wasn't too bad overall, but he sure was punished in his life. The church at Ephesus was sure pretty good overall, but it was about to lose its candlestick. The churches of Pergamos and Thyatira, Jesus Christ found fault with, for they had a Few things there, few things there that bothered him. So don't reason to yourself, but I'm not that bad overall. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good Christian. Pretty good isn't good enough. The Lord says, be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Be ye holy, even as your Father in heaven is holy. That's our standard. And that's what we want to remind ourselves of as we sit in the house of God And we do not lie to ourselves. A rich young man came to Jesus Christ one time and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Keep the commandments. The young man said, I've kept them all since my my youth. I've done them all. He has this delusion. I'm I'm a pretty good guy. I've kept all the commandments. Jesus, with the eyes of the Word of God of Hebrews 4.12, knowing the thoughts and intents of every heart and all things being naked and open unto his eyes, said, well, all you, need, all you have left is to sell what you've got and give it to the poor and come follow me. See, he was a pretty good guy, except in one area, he was greedy and covetous and wasn't able to give away his wealth. So it didn't matter. And he went away sorrowful. He lost out of God's best for his life 
Whether he was a child of God or not is not the issue. He lost following Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ called him to come follow me. Why? Because he was a pretty good guy. But he lacked one thing. Look at James 1.26 about lacking one thing. James chapter 1 and verse 26. That was the rich young ruler. All these I've kept from my youth up. I'm doing pretty well. I'm not as bad as you make me out to be. But the Lord Jesus Christ is able to see through all that facade and look right into the heart of that man and know that he had one problem and it was pretty severe. And it was desire to, his, his desire to be rich. James 1.26, look at this verse. If any man among you seem to be religious, I'm a pretty good Christian. If any man among you seem to be religious, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not as bad as you make me out to be. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Listen to the word of God. We are looking into the mirror of God's word, and it's showing blemishes on our lives. It says here, a man may seem to be religious, but his religion is vain if he deceives his heart, thinking he's good, while he doesn't bridle his tongue. I've never been drunk. I've never fornicated. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered. I've obeyed and honored my parents. He says, but the Lord says, you don't bridle your tongue. Sometimes your tongue gets away from you and runs off the road into the ditch. Your tongue says things that it shouldn't. Your religion is a sham. But they seem to be religious because they can say, I haven't fornicated and I haven't committed adultery and so forth and so on. But in this area they fail. And so they, Jesus Christ would say your religion is vain. Well, now, what, what about the other things he's doing well? Your religion is vain. What about his statement, but I'm not as bad as you make me? Your religion is vain. That's right. That area in your life that you're not ruling pollutes the rest. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai came to the people of Israel and said, If a priest is carrying a piece of holy flesh to the altar... And that holy flesh rubs against something, will it make that thing that it rubbed against holy? No. If the priest has touched a dead body and touches a holy thing, will it corrupt that holy thing? Yes. The fact that Israel at that point was doing a lot of things well, but they were not building the house of the Lord, corrupted everything they did. And that is a message of Haggai chapter 2 to us. That when you have an area in your life where you are not keeping the commandments of God and living for Him, it corrupts the rest of your life so that your religion is vain. What would Paul say about someone that said, I wasn't, I'm not that bad overall. Actually, I'm doing quite well. Did the, was the Apostle, Apostle Paul doing quite well in his life? In Philippians chapter 3, did he find contentment in that? Did he use that to excuse being a 95% Christian? Or did he say, I have not yet apprehended that for which I was apprehended. He still pressed for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He, ha he did not relax, nor did he ever take comfort in what he had accomplished. He continued to press forward. And if we're not pressing forward in holiness in our lives, in service and love to Christ, then we are not like the Apostle Paul. We're using a delusion to justify a less than our best service to the Lord. What would he warn us? He would say, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Right. When you think that you have arrived at some level of spiritual accomplishment, take heed because you're about to fall. So that's a delusion. That's a lie that we tell ourselves, but I'm not that bad. I'm actually doing quite well. But if you've even got one area in your life that were like a bridled or an unbridled tongue, your religion is vain. May the Lord save us from such delusions. I hear someone say, as they're living a carnal life in a greater or lesser degree,
It feels right. And I have a peace about it. It feels right. And I have a peace about it. I've heard that one many times. This is one of the most common delusions. I have a peace about what I'm doing. It feels good to me. It seems to be right to me. The Bible has a lot to say about that. When you preach on the holidays, you'll find especially women wanting to say, how could such a thing that makes me feel so good and has so much peace associated with it be wrong? How could that possibly be? We answer, since when do feelings have anything to do with God, righteousness, truth, or wisdom? Feelings don't have anything to do with those things. God has not told us to measure anything by feelings or by the peace we have. There's quite a bit of peace to a natural man or to the carnal flesh when you're sinning. That peace is not proof that what you're doing is right. The Word of God is the only standard that we can measure ourselves by. Eve had some wonderful feelings as she stood in the Garden of Eden. And the devil told her that she wasn't going to die. And in fact, if she would eat the fruit, she'd be like God. And as she looked at that tree, she had such a warm and fuzzy feeling come over her because she said, the tree does look like fruit that would make one wise. It does look like it would taste good. She had wonderful feelings. And a great peace came over her about the good things that would result from her eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it ruined the entire race. As she gave it to her husband. Feelings. I have a peace about it. That's because you're in the flesh. When you're in the flesh far enough, you could do anything and have a peace about it. Catholics feel right, right good at Mass. Brother Lou just got back. Going to the funeral of his aunt. And watching them have Mass at that funeral. Catholics feel good about it. The stained glass. The high ceilings, the good organ, the good singing, the gold, the decorative items around the sanctuary, the robes, the incense, depending on what ceremony you're at. Oh, they feel good and they have a peace about it. But they're in the brothel of Baal. Feelings or peace. You know what the Bible says? Proverbs 14, 12. The Bible addresses this delusion. This is one of the ways we talk to ourselves. And I've heard this excuse before. And you're going to run into this excuse. I have a peace about it. What in the world are you talking about? Can you find me a verse in the Bible that tells you to judge God's will for your life by the peace you get from it? Of course, if you do something to serve yourself, you're going to have peace about it. You're going to be pretty excited that you just did something for your own benefit. Of course, you'll have peace. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's what the Bible has to say about what you think is right. We humble ourselves to the word of God and let it control us. And so we're in the house of the Lord this morning. March 16th, 2008. Asking ourselves if we're lying to ourselves at all. That we're doing something and we do it because it's right in our sight. Or we have a peace about it. Or it feels good. We must humble ourselves before God's word and tremble at the words of God. What does God's word say? Right. How about 16.2? Proverbs 16.2. All the good ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. Of course they are. Why do you think he did them? Because they were clean in his own eyes. But the Lord weigheth the spirits. Verse 25, same chapter. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And if you say to me, well, that's the same one as 1412. You just read a verse twice. Well, there's a reason for that. The Holy Spirit put it in the Bible that way. There's a reason for that emphasis because we think that way too much. How about 21.2? Proverbs 21.2. Let me read another one again. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Oh, brethren, let's bring a broken heart to the Word of God, and that's the only way we'll end up living the way that we should. 
We do not measure things by feelings or by peace. Listen, the feelings I've had described by visitors to our assembly, and I've told you this before, range from. I remember the young man that came to to our assemblies, and his testimony later was, and I quote, I got Holy Ghost goosebumps in that service. Unquote. Then another man came and visited, and wasn't too long after that. I remember the, the distinction so well. That church is dead. I couldn't feel any spirit in there at all. Well, I wonder which one's the truth. Did one man get Holy Ghost goosebumps, and another man detect that there wasn't any Holy Spirit in this church at all? You know, we trust that between the two of them is the truth. I don't read about Holy Ghost goosebumps. The air chillers may have been turned up too high, but not the Holy Ghost giving goosebumps. Especially at the way we preach and the way that we worship in our church. But see, those are feelings. Why in the world would you even make either statement? What does the Word of God have to say? You know, the Corinthians would have thought that Paul was very boring in comparison to their preachers. They didn't come behind any church in their spiritual gifts. But when Paul wrote, look at the way he wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Sound doctrine. Pounding them for their disobedience. Lifting up Jesus Christ, but not lifting up them and their gifts. We don't go by those feelings. If the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, the the heart is the last thing we want to trust. Our feelings and peace is the very last things we want to trust when it comes to the Word of God, if the Bible's true. Who lies to you the most? Thank you, Mark. Yourself. You lie to you more than anybody else lies to you. Do you know we worry so much about lying, others lying to us? But we lie to ourselves more than they do. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is deceitful above all things. And it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only the Lord truly understands how depraved and wicked and deceitful our hearts are. We do not go by our hearts. And yet, do you know what is being taught today as as an informal religion? Follow your heart. My heart told me it was the right thing to do. My heart had a peace about it. it. It just seemed like in my heart that's what I ought to do. That's just what the Bible condemns. That's a false religion. That's a lie. That's a deceit. And we reject it. We come to the Bible and say, Lord, what does your heart have to say? What have you dictated for the terms of my life? And we measure everything by that. And you know what? The more that you walk in the Holy Spirit of God, you'll have a peace about everything God has to say. Rather than a peace about what you've chosen to do against Him. I hear another lie. I hear another deceitful delusion of deceived Christians. But everyone else is a hypocrite. I don't go to church anymore because everyone's a hypocrite. Have you ever heard that one? Another popular one. I don't think there's any value in religion because all I've ever seen in religion is hypocrites. I don't go to that church because there's hypocrites there. So they excuse their lack of religious commitment or zeal on the sins of others. Since they know about sin in some church members' lives, they decide to add to those sins by sinning themselves by not living for the Lord. Now that makes good sense. They condemn hypocrisy and then become hypocrites. There's two lies here. Not everyone else is a hypocrite. And it wouldn't matter anyway if they were. Do you know what? Every man shall bear his own burden. Galatians 6, 5. If the entire world falls into hypocrisy, that doesn't excuse you for being a hypocrite. If the whole world does. You know, I love Peter's zeal. I'm just sorry about his perseverance. But Peter said, Lord... If all others deny you, I never will. That's the attitude we all ought to have. We just ought to follow through on it. He had the right intentions. But the Lord had a purpose with Peter, and it all worked out for the greater glory of God and the greater profit of his soul, though he sinned in doing so. There's another lie. 
that's, that's in, implied in saying, well, I don't care anymore about religion because there's so many hypocrites. It's that person's forgetting what's going to happen to hypocrites. God doesn't take kindly to hypocrites. Job chapter 20 and verse 5 tells me the joy of the hypocrite is short. And the Lord would rather have us hot or cold, but not lukewarm. He spews lukewarm Christians out of his mouth. They tend to forget that when they talk about hypocrisy. It's true that hypocrisy is a terrible blight on the gospel of Jesus Christ. There ought not to be any hypocrites. Those that have been saved by the grace of God and shown the truth of the gospel, they should be living their lives like the Apostle Paul so that there are no hypocrites. That's the way it ought to be. But that's not the way that it is. There are hypocrites, but they are no excuse for anyone not living all out for the Lord. You stand before God, the judge by yourself. What others have done, what others are doing, or what others will do has no bearing at all on how God's going to judge you. He's going to judge you by his word. And that's what we have to live by. Are you that committed? Let every other family compromise. My family will not compromise. Let every other man compromise. I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to follow the Lord fully. I'm going to be like Caleb. I'm going to be like Joshua, who stood in the face of hundreds of thousands that wanted to stone them. And they would not compromise their commitment that they were going to obey God and take the promised land. I hear another one. Oh, God isn't as severe as you make him out to be. Is that what you thought to yourself? That maybe God's a little nicer than I am? Trying to represent him from the Bible? God's not as severe as you make him out to be. You make God so hard and so fearful and so terrible. Why, it sounds like your God judges sin. (laughs) And sinners. Don't you know that he's a friend of all of us and God loves everybody? And he's watching us from a distance and he wants to do nice things for us. And the first rule of the universe is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't you know any of those things? You're right. God is not as severe as I make him out to be. He's more severe than I make him out to be. And I've told you that before. One second after meeting the God of heaven. In his righteousness and holiness with your sins. You will Rue the day that I had not presented him a more dreadful and terrible God than I do. God is angry with the wicked. How often? Every day. Him that loveth violence, my soul hateth. Psalm 11 and verse 5. Don't you cover yourself and excuse yourself thinking that God is not as severe as he's presented from the Bible. You have an idea of God after the imagination of your own heart. And those are the imaginations that must be pulled down, cast down, and destroyed and brought into the obedience of Jesus Christ. How did Job respond when he finally met the Lord? You know, for 30 chapters, he asked to meet the Lord. I want a meeting with the Lord. He didn't think God, he didn't think God would be too severe. Because after all, he was suffering unrighteously because he was a good man. What did he say? What are some of the statements that you like about Job 40 or Job 42? I put my hand over my mouth. I have no more to say. I repent in dust and ashes. Mine ear had heard about you, but now mine eye seeth you. I repent in dust and ashes. When you get a real vision of God, you will realize he is severe against sin. Why in the world would Paul write to Hebrews and tell them it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? That is New Testament. Why would he write two chapters later? For our God is a consuming fire. Jesus said, my friends, to his disciples, fear not them which kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. I'll forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And that was to his friends. That was to his friends. Don't excuse your sin by saying God isn't as severe 
as he's made out to be in this church. You can say to yourself, every, every other Christian that I meet and talk to, whenever we talk about church, they don't, they don't have to sit and listen to God being presented as being so vengeful on sin. He's a big sugar daddy. No one else talks that way. But they're missing the truth of God's Word. Right. The sin in the Garden of Eden cost the entire race their lives. Spiritually, physically. One sin in the Garden of Eden. That is a dreadful God. And He's called a dreadful God. And we do not want to excuse our sins by thinking any less of Him. When Isaiah the prophet met him in Isaiah 6, and we read this not too long ago, all he could cry out is, Woe is me, a prophet of God. Woe is me, I am undone. He didn't see any hope. Because his eyes had seen the Lord of glory. John, the bosom friend, literally, the bosom friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, fell at his feet as dead when he saw him glorified in Revelation chapter 1. Don't cover your sins by thinking that God is less than the Bible presents him to be or less than how we present him. I hear someone saying, I'd be bored. I'd be bored to live the Christian life that you describe. I couldn't be happy doing that. There's too much fun in the world. I'd be bored. This is a lying delusion of the devil. Right. Whenever, I hear, whenever I see someone that's in the flesh, they're always the most unhappy people. Always. And yet they want to sit in judgment and say, if I were to live like you, I know you're happier than I am, but if I was to live like you, I couldn't be happy. It's a lie of the devil. It's one of the ways, especially young people, if I was to live, if I was to live the way that's preached in that church, if I was to live that way, I wouldn't have any fun. The real fun is living that way. The reason you can't see it And the reason that you're lying to yourself is because you're in the flesh. When you're in the flesh, a life of righteousness looks painfully boring. But it's because you're in the flesh. And as I've told you before, there's a great chasm between the flesh and the spirit in this particular case. And there's only one way to get across that chasm, and it's by faith and repentance. It's repentance for your wicked, carnal, fleshly living and faith... That what God has said is true, and it has the greatest fulfillment for my life. And you run at that chasm, and by repentance and faith, you leap across. And you say, Lord, I have been neglecting your word. I haven't been reading. I haven't been praying. I haven't been meditating. I haven't been listening to good music. I've been entertaining bad friends. I'm not going to do any of that anymore. That's repentance. And then you run toward the Word of God and feed your soul with the Word of God and with prayer and with meditation and you find yourself across the chasm. But you've got to do it by faith when you're in the flesh. Because when you're in the flesh, living a spiritual life does look boring. Because the flesh is lying to you. The devil is lying to you. And the world's lying to you about it. Look at Psalm 36. Psalm 36. When you're in the flesh... Brethren, when you're in the flesh, you don't have any spiritual conviction. Your flesh doesn't. There's no spiritual discernment. There's no spiritual appreciation for godliness. So you have to repent to get out of the flesh, and by the grace of God, He'll grant you that repentance. And you can leap by faith across that chasm onto the sure ground on the other side where you can live a life of joyful Christianity in service to the Lord. Psalm 36.8, last Sunday, we read this psalm. Look at the difference in this psalm. Remember the great division between wicked men and godly men. Look at verse 2, or verse 1. Transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. When we look at a wicked man committed transgression, we learn a lesson. It's very visible. He does not fear God. Verse 2 tells us how he justifies his sin. He flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. And all sin will be found to be hateful either in this world or the next. Verse 8, look at the difference. They, these are those who put their trust in God and obey Him. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. That's as good as it gets in this world. 
It's living for the Lord. It's the reason that Paul and Silas can sing praises to God at midnight with bleeding backs in the innermost prison in the city of Philippi. That's joy. Look at 43.4. Psalm 43.4. Psalm 43.4. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. My exceeding joy. But the, the flesh and the devil tells you, if I was to live the way that my parents talk and the way that the pastor talks, I'd be bored. Show us your joy. Show us your joy. Right. Everyone that thinks that way, we can tell by the look on your face that you're miserable. You're hopeless. You're lonely. You're frustrated. You're unhappy. You're unfulfilled. You're confused. You're double-minded. We can see it. Your face is like a sign to us. And then there are others in here who walk with God every day, and we can see something else on their face. They're happy, content, fulfilled, and they have exceeding joy. And they experience pleasure because their eyes are dancing and their tongue is dancing with the good things of what God has done for them. What a difference. What a difference. The lie is, if I was to live that way, I would never have any fun. If you don't live that way, the little temporal fun that you think you have is going to eat you up from the inside out and destroy you until his iniquity be found to be hateful. The real joy is in God himself because God created us. And the greatest satisfaction for a human soul is to be in a personal relationship with God and to walk with Him. He is the exceeding joy of the human heart. Asaph said, Whom have I in heaven? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. Amen. Psalm 73 and verse 25. When you're in that kind of a condition, you hear that lie rising up in your soul. If I was to live all out, I wouldn't have any fun. I've warned you, repent and do the first works and be back in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ told the church at Ephesus that while they were doing many things right, they had lost their first love and he told them how to get it back. Repent from whence thou art fallen. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent and do the first works. Three steps. Remember from whence thou art fallen. When you do not look, when you do not look at the Christian life as the fulfillment for your soul, remember that you've fallen from something that you knew before, hopefully, and repent and do the first works again. That's running and leaping across that chasm by faith and repentance and doing the first works of reading and delighting and seeking the Lord and praying for his face to be revealed to you, and he will, and you will find the satisfaction of your soul. He is our exceeding joy, and without him we will never find joy, not in this world or the next, except in him. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.